we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Rich, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we are continuing our weekly series with various interesting and accomplished people. Our discussions have generally been on science and COVID topics, but we can go anywhere that our conversations can lead. And if listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. I'm very pleased today to introduce our guest, Dr. Aaron Cariotti, who is an academic psychiatrist and the author of three books, including most recently, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. Dr. Cariotti is director of the Program in Bioethics and American Democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a senior scholar at the Brownstone Institute. For many years, Dr. Cariotti was professor of psychiatry at UC Irvine School of Medicine and director of the Medical Ethics Program at UCI Health. Well, Aaron, let's begin. What have you been thinking about lately? Well, recently, I've been very focused on the whole issue of government censorship, specifically government censoring the views of ordinary Americans on social media. And what we've discovered through the Twitter files revelations and also through a lawsuit that I'm involved in called Missouri v. Biden is that starting around 2017 and then accelerating massively during the pandemic, we have a situation in which various government agencies, various executive agencies have been pressuring and jawboning and threatening social media companies if those companies don't do their bidding in terms of taking down or deamplifying content that the government doesn't like. And the discovery of this began during COVID because people like me, and I would imagine uh, possibly people like you as well, yeah. were subjected on social media to various forms of censorship, having video interviews taken down from YouTube or having something labeled as quote unquote misinformation on LinkedIn or on Twitter. And it became clear that the social media companies were not doing this entirely on their own initiative. So in Missouri v. Biden, we have, uh, we have a situation in which we have two states, Missouri and Louisiana, the state attorney generals, challenging uh, over a dozen agencies in the federal government, public health agencies like the CDC and the NIH, but also intelligence uh, and military agencies as well. Um, now we know that the Department of Treasury was involved in censoring uh, people's comments on, you know, criticizing the Fed's monetary policy. Even the Census Bureau was involved in censorship. And it's it's not clear what they were up to. I think it had to do with uh, people questioning uh, election integrity and mail-in ballots and that sort of thing. So... This case was joined by five private plaintiffs, uh, myself, two other uh, physician scientists that you know, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, uh, Dr. Martin Kuldorf, the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, um, a woman named Jill Hines, who runs a health freedom nonprofit in Louisiana, and a journalist named Jim Hoft. 
So the five of us in those two states are alleging that the government is violating our First Amendment free speech rights. Arguably, private social media companies can censor. I, I say argue, arguably because there's debate about whether those companies should be considered public carriers and therefore neutral as regards to content. But setting aside those debates, no one doubts, no one should doubt that the federal government cannot censor and the federal government cannot suborn social media companies to do its bidding when it comes to censorship. That's a clear violation of our constitutional rights. And as that case has moved forward, we've deposed um, uh, half a dozen witness, witnesses uh, on the defense side, including Anthony Fauci, that got a little bit of media attention back around Thanksgiving, because that was the first time that Fauci was forced to answer some pointed questions um, under oath, under threat of penalty of perjury. And the documents that we've also gotten on subpoena during the discovery phase have clearly shown, number one, that this is happening, that what we're alleging is in fact happening. Number two, that it's happening on a much larger scale than we even suspected. So in the initial uh, complaint that we filed with the court and the initial declarations that the uh, plaintiffs filed, we really focused on COVID-related censorship, you know, people being censored for criticizing the government's preferred pandemic policies like lockdowns or vaccine mandates or mask mandates. But what we found actually is that this whole censorship apparatus was operating to uh, suppress and censor public debate and opinions of ordinary Americans on all a whole range of topics from uh, election integrity to our withdrawal from Af Afghanistan to the war in Ukraine to monetary policy, uh, to abortion, gender ideology, um, and uh, gender affirmative, affirmative care and medicine. Basically, you, you, you take any contested issue in American public life, and it seems like the government has had its thumb on the scale to control the flow of information and to control what, what we were allowed to say and what opinions or judgments we were allowed to express. So this is a very serious problem because, um, you know, functioning democracy requires public debate, obviously. Uh, the Founding Fathers put uh, the right of free speech in the First Amendment for a very good reason. And if what we're alleging is true, uh, as the judge in this case recently said in a ruling on July 4th, uh, the, the judge himself said, if what the plaintiffs allege is true, and there's considerable evidence that it is true, he acknowledged, then this is the worst violation of constitutionally protected free speech rights in American history. <laughs> this is a strong claim. You know, Anytime you're involved in something, you would like to think that, yeah, this is of world historical importance or this is going to be a landmark legal case. Right. But it's the judge saying it, not, not you, the plaintiff, saying it. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the reason that it's the most egregious violation is that this is the first case of its kind of the digital era. So if you look at other landmark free speech cases where the government got its hand slapped or got pushback for stepping over the line and censoring 
Americans illegally, it was usually a case of the government pressuring one publisher or uh, you know one newspaper to take down an article or a series of articles or one particular source. But what we're talking about here with the censorship apparatus in the digital age, in the age of social media, implicates the government in censoring literally hundreds of thousands of Americans tens of millions of times by by tens of thousands of government employees yes that's that's right operation of the government that's right uh michael schellenberger one of the journalists on the twitter files who testified in congress on this recently has described the censorship apparatus as the censorship industrial complex and the word industry in that should be taken literally because it literally is an industry with censorship is now an industry with training programs at places like Harvard and Stanford and the University of Washington with career paths um, where you could get a job either in the public sector working for the government and one of these agencies involved in censorship or in I, I call it the quasi private sector with quasi private entities. They're quasi private places like Graphica or the Stanford Internet observatory uh, or the Atlantic Council, because many of these uh, nonprofits or university based programs are government funded. Most of their funding comes from government grants from from those agencies that they're working with on censorship. So they've become sort of government cutouts where the government is trying to outsource some of this censorship work to these quasi private entities in order to do an end run around the constitution. That doesn't work legally. Uh, The government, the Supreme Court in previous cases has made it very clear that government is not allowed to outsource activities that it wouldn't be allowed to do itself. That still constitutes state action. That still constitutes unconstitutional behavior. That's long precedent, that's right. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, the, the simplest analogy to use is, you know, if I hire a hitman to kill you, well, the hitman is responsible for that act of murder, but I am also still responsible. I don't get to wash my hands of That's that the action simply because you commit murder part. Yeah, of it, right? yeah, just just so, just so. So that that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with an entity that started growing up around 2017, um, and I can explain a little bit about the history of that in a moment, but really accelerated massively during the pandemic and it's grown to really staggering proportions and it's grown to proportions that have allowed it up until now to control the flow of information online so where did all the money to support this come from if there are ten thousand employees it's rivaling a large government agency like fda cdc Mm -hmm. and so on that means congress it kind of controls the budgets of all that Mm -hmm. why hasn't congress just shut it off Yeah, so it's a great question. Congress is starting to pay attention to this. So in the latest draft of the appropriations bill for the Department of Defense, um, the the, one of the committees specifically put in a provision there that this money cannot be used to give grants to any of these censorship industries. And they named some of the specific uh, government cutouts that that we've uncovered in our lawsuit. And so Congress is starting to pay a little bit of attention to this issue. There was a, a bill uh, recently introduced in Congress uh, looking at this whole issue of government censorship 
Uh, it's probably going to be, you know, vetoed by the current administration. But at least, uh, you know, at least some of the uh, elected representatives are starting to make some noise about this. But I think the main reason that uh, Congress hasn't acted is that up until a few months ago, most people didn't realize that this was even happening. It was sort of happening behind the scenes. And unless you were involved in it, um, you didn't necessarily have anyone looking over your shoulder. In fact, some of the internal communications that we've that we've gotten from some of the intelligence agencies, we, we have people involved in this censorship saying it's only a matter of time before people start asking questions and people start figuring out what we're doing here. And it's almost like they're racing against the clock because they know they know that what they're doing violates the highest law of the land. They're gonna right. continue doing it until someone forces them to stop and until the, the American people sort of wake up to the fact that this is happening. And so, I mean, one of the really important aspects of this case is, is not just a legal challenge to this censorship Leviathan, but also the public attention that the case is receiving um, and the kinds of conversations like the one that we're having right now are necessary just to make the American people themselves aware of what's going on. Because really, it, it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take more than one lawsuit to d dismantle uh, this industry or to slay the censorship Leviathan. And that's really only ultimately going to come about when, you know, the will of the American people gets behind it and the American people decide, no, this is not something that we're going to we're going to tolerate any longer. Well, so Judge Dowdy uh, in the case made it public on July 4th, and that got mm -hmm. a lot of attention. That's that right. Was, that was the first thing. And it will undoubtedly get more as it wins its way through the, the courts. Um, and um, I, you know, I've lost faith in the wisdom of the American people, to be honest. <laughs> I, and that's because of the university system that I think yeah. has corrupted the yeah. thinking of yeah. everybody so that they've been basically trained not to think, not to figure things out for themselves, just to accept slogans and and think through the most trivial of, of arguments of the way, the end rather than the means. That I, I think that the, the polarization is of people uh, going after what they want for themselves and their party right now and not thinking of the consequences, not thinking of the right. value, the political values or anything else about it. No, I think that's exactly right. The, the rule of law be damned, you know, the instruments of uh, political power are there just to, to, you know, as useful instruments to achieve whatever ends that I or my tribe think is best. And, you know, this is a very, very bad situation for us to be in. And I agree. I mean, the seeds of this have been planted for decades through the uh, dumbing down uh, and politicization of the university system and um, in the way in which so many Americans have been trained not to think uh, and not to exercise critical judgment and in fact not to ask questions and one of the reasons that censorship is so concerning to me is uh you know people americans assume that our democratic order or republican uh form of government is always going to be there and it's sort of immune from degeneration or from corruption and it's not. It's a very delicate system that can be very easily disrupted. And the possibility of totalitarian tendencies in free societies is 
always there and it's always present. Right. It's totalitarian capture, basically. Yeah, um, that's right. And w- when you say that, when you say the word totalitarianism, um, it's easy for people to have a knee-jerk reaction and say, well, look, we, we don't have concentration camps and we don't have secret police. And well, we actually we do have, have, we actually do have mass surveillance. <laughs> so, right. I mean, and, and Canada and Australia do have concentration camps. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So the quarantine centers, but, but, mm-hmm. you know, for the, for the average American, you don't look around and see the full, full fledged apparatus of what we think of as totalitarian societies at work. And so it's easy to dismiss that claim, but I, I often quote, uh, the political theorist Eric Vogelin, who studied the 20th century totalitarianisms uh, from Nazism to uh, communist uh, uh, Russia to, you know, Italian fascism. And he said the common feature of all the 20th century totalitarian systems was not men in jackboots or mass surveillance or concentration camps, as horrifying as all of those things are. He said the common feature of all these systems was the prohibition of questions. Right, the inability to pose certain questions, the inability to ask certain questions is where these regimes always begin. The regimes always monopolize what counts as rationality, what counts as knowledge. And if you raise your hand and ask, you know, in, uh, in the USSR, if you raise questions about the pro- proletarian revolution or the Marxist dialectic of history, um, th- the communists don't argue with you. Um, they don't sit down and, you know, explain how you got this or that premise wrong or why your logical reasoning is flawed. They simply uh, say that, you know, you're infected with bourgeois consciousness. You're obviously irrational and crazy. Um, we need to put you in a psychiatric hospital. You know, we need to we're, we're not going to have a conversation with you. We're merely going to you know shut you up. And if you won't shut up, we're going to steamroll you. Right. And that's what you see happening today in public discourse. Uh, that's what you saw happening uh, in a very, very intense way uh, during the pandemic, where credible people were not allowed to ask entirely reasonable questions, right? Questions and ordinary, about empirical data, not even about political things, just empirical that's right. data. That's right. That's right. And ordinary Americans were uh, not allowed to ask perfectly sensible questions like, Okay, I might not be a virologist, I might not be an epidemiologist, but but it seems a little bit like irrational to have a policy where I walk into a restaurant, I have to wear a mask when I'm standing, but as soon as I sit down, I can take the mask off. Like we're living in this kind of unreality. Only circulate in the top six feet of the room. So exactly, (laughs) you know, so we have a situation in which we're living in a kind of unreality that most sensible people know is unreal. And yet they feel that they cannot say anything about it. This is the exact characteristic that you see at work in totalitarian societies. And censorship is is the initial phase of inculcating that. Actually, the initial phase is probably indoctrination through the university systems <laughs> that train people not to ask questions um, and train people to obey uh, people who claim to be authorities, uh, claim to be acting in their interest. Um, but then the censorship accelerates that. And, you know, at the end of that road, you get a situation in which people are not even capable of asking questions. The questions no longer occur to them. Right. They're self-censoring themselves. So we're getting to a commercial break point. So we're going to take a break and we'll be back very shortly. Everybody, please stay tuned.
was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix Rx. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix Rx is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Risch with Dr. Aaron Cariotti. We were just discussing um, censorship and the idea of people taking it on as their own uh, behavior as opposed to feeling it externally you know the other thing that's censored and prohibited is humor is you can't yeah. joke about anything yeah that's um, right um but I, but I, it's astonishing to me that people are willing you know this started way before covid it started way before 2017 yeah. i call correctness yeah, right. yep. with censorship and we've kind of tolerated that thinking well these are crazy people and even though it's annoying, it's benign, it's it's politically benign, not realizing that every step of censorship is a foray into seeing what the people will tolerate. And when they do, they increase it to the next level. And that's how we got here, by incremental boiling of the pot of censorship. That That is exactly right. I remember uh, several years ago when comedians started saying that they would no longer go on college campuses because there were so many landmines um, that they they couldn't navigate it. It was hard to joke about anything. That is a very, very, very ominous sign. And pe people may think that, you know, stand-up comedy or Saturday Night Live is, is sort of trivial. It's there for entertainment and to make us laugh. But humor plays a very important role and function in society, even in more authoritarian regimes, um, even in something like a monarchy where power is concentrated in the king. The, uh, the, the court jester, right, the king's fool, 
played a very important role in the court because he was given leave to say things in, in a sort of slanted way, right? Not directly confronting the king, uh, but uh, reminding the king that he too is, is frail and he too is a human being subject to folly and he too can be subjected to ridicule, right? And that was kept within very, you know, carefully regulated bounds. But he was, the, the court jester was able to do things and say things that other people couldn't, right? We've lost that in our society through political correctness. And the, the ability for people to go on TV and, and do skits ridiculing both candidates in a presidential race is very important for an open and free society. And in fact, in some respect, the latitude that we have on free speech in this country is a historical exception. Free speech is not the norm throughout human history. It's an exception that requires constant defense because the, the temptation of anyone in power, even those who are benevolent and certainly those who think themselves benevolent, which is pr pretty much every person in power, the temptation is always to maintain that power through uh, censorship, through controlling the flow of information, through controlling what can and cannot be said, through you know defending their policies against critique. And our by founding fathers- Not by argument. By censorship, not by argument, exactly. Because, you know, censorship, censorship is much easier. Um, and our country was founded on the principle that government of the people, by the people, and for the people required that people be allowed to say their piece and to debate. And that bad ideas uh, should be countered, not through censorship, but through better ideas, right? And that, that requires a basic trust in the rationality, common sense, and intuition of most Americans most of the time. Uh, because the alternative, the alternative is to concentrate power in the hands of a few and to anoint those few as the arbiters of truth, to give them a, a, a monopoly on what counts as knowledge and rationality. And no person, no individual, no government agency or institution has the godlike omniscience to make those judgments appropriately. So what I see is we have an elite class of which a subset is enfranchised to make those policies and laws and so on. Exactly. And, and they get it wrong. And a lot of it is wrong, especially during COVID. And you have the rest of the elite class, like you and me and others, our colleagues, trying to push back. And we're not, you know, your average farmer in Minnesota. We are people who are just as elite in training and experience and careers as the people in the government, if not more so. Yeah. And yet, you know, we are being censored every bit as much uh, as anybody else in spite of our credentials. That That's exactly right. And, you know, part of the part of the issue there is that science and censorship are totally incompatible science is not a collection of irrefut irrefutable claims that can never be challenged uh that formulate themselves through some kind of process of consensus that's not what science is anyone who knows the history of science knows that science is a method 
right? It's, it's not a collection of truths. It's a method for um, trying to move toward approximations and models of the truth of things. And it only advances through conjecture and refutation. The and, characteristic uh, and feature. Contrary, contrarianness. It exactly. Doesn't, it doesn't advance by people saying we agree with it. It advances by saying people saying we don't agree with it and here's why. Yeah, a scientific hypothesis is a hypothesis and a scientific theory is a scientific theory precisely because it's in principle falsifiable, right? Right. So, uh, so saying I am the science or my pronouncements are the science and cannot be falsified is totally antithetical to the scientific method. And science advances precisely by overturning and upending what everyone thought was the case and what everyone assumed to be true. Um, and so, you, you know, you and I have the experience of working with scientists. And if you take a dozen scientists and you put them in a room together, what do they do, right? They debate endlessly. Um, you know, they argue about the data and the salience right. of this or that study and, and the methods the and, of... and, the, and so on. You know, it's interesting. When I was a freshman in college, I had the parascientific theory that debate in science was inversely related to the, the discreteness of the data in the discipline of the science. So humanities and social sciences would have lots of debate and physics and chemistry would have little debate. And I went to... A, in the first week I was in, in college, a uh, physics colloquium, sat, I got there early, sat in the front row. Richard Feynman, the physicist, came down, sat next to me, started talking to me, totally freaked me out as, as an undergrad. <laughs> and, and then at the end of the talk, this physicist three rows behind me got into a virtually violent debate with the speaker who was from Denmark, hopped over a few rows and almost came to fist blows and came to blows. the chairman of the department had to separate them <laughs> over their disagreements. And I thought yeah. if this was physics, you know, then <laughs> there's no hope for anything in science. Yeah, <laughs> Science is a blood sport. I mean, I think it's worth going back and reading Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions. Um, because he points out that science is also always a human enterprise, right? And there's vested interests at stake and in maintaining certain scientific paradigms against challenge, even when those paradigms get to the point where they're no longer uh, tenable and they no longer square with the best available data. And so, you know, one of the old jokes about progress in the history of science is science advances one funeral at a time, <laughs> that, right? That's right. That's right, because the, the prevailing doctrine goes down with the person who defends it. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, you know, anointing um, a group of scientists or these, uh, you know, any institution or government agency as the final arbiter of truth also, uh, you know, ignores the fact that all of these people have their own interests, their own reputations, their own grant funding. There are all kinds of human considerations that we would like to think scientists are able to totally abstract themselves from those considerations, just, just disinterestedly pursue the truth. Science is a discipline in which scientists strive to do that. And some of the best among us uh, approximate that ideal better than others. But the whole business of science is still messy. It's still human. It still involves people jumping over the railing to, get, to go to blows with the guy up at the podium. Um, well, and, you know, it's interesting that, uh, Feynman in his 1974 commencement address said that 
scientists, basically the idea that scientists believe their own studies and therefore yeah. that they yeah. need to bend over backwards in trying to criticize their own studies, exactly. let alone what they say about other studies. Yeah. And I know from all the studies that I've done that it's really easy to believe that what you did, you did the best quality work. You did, you have the best quality data. Therefore, your study has to be the best one of it. And you know from all your history how well you do stuff. And so therefore, you have yeah. to be doing good science. And so it's very easy to believe your own studies over others. And and you have to be critical. You just have to be suspicious and skeptical in order to do science. Yeah, just so. Um, we also have to pay attention to the relationship between science and technology. Um, you know, when, especially when we're talking about medical interventions and technological devices like a, a vaccine or a mask. Because technology has its own logic associated with it. Um, when we develop a product, there is an incentive to want to use it and to want to use it as widely as possible. I just saw the film Oppenheimer, which I, I recommend. I think it's a very, very interesting exploration of some of these issues. And, you know, one of the conclusions that at least as it was portrayed in the movie, I haven't I don't know that much about Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, but at least in the film, they portrayed him as basically saying at a certain point, he realized after the Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that if we're going to develop a bomb, uh, it will be used, right? The idea of developing these weapons and then restraining ourselves from using them, uh, he, he just thought was implausible. And, and that, that was why he began opposing the development of the hydrogen bomb. And people accused him of being uh you know self-contradictory or hypocritical for that for that stance and so the relationship between science and technology and the relationship between science and public policy and science and the political order uh, is a very complex one and the idea that science can maintain its neutrality once it has a direct implication for public policy is also naive um but the, and, and that's, that's not our job I, yeah. would, I would argue that that is we are not trained and thoughtful, at least most of us, um, to in public policy, to, uh, you know, let alone moral theory, to be able to make those political decisions about the use of our technologies. And, you know, there's this Indian proverb to every man is given the key to heaven. The same key opens the gates of hell. Yes. You know? Yeah. And one of the things that happened during the pandemic, especially initially, was that politicians didn't want to take responsibility for their own decisions. So the, the follow the experts meme and listen to the experts became a sort of political shield against accountability and responsibility because, hey, I'm just following what the experts tell me to do. Of course, those politicians could decide which experts they were going to anoint and which experts they were going to censor. So th th those were always inescapably uh, political. But then the other thing that happens with scientific expertise in relation to public policy is um, science is usually extremely complicated, nuanced, messy and provisional especially on something like a pandemic, right? And if you were to ask a really credible scientist or epidemiologist, uh, you know, a question that would answer a public policy, um, you know, proposal, should we lock down or not? You know, the, the answer you would get from a credible scientist will be nuanced, provisional, 
messy. You know, there's a lot that we still don't know. But that's not what politicians want to hear. The real answer is I have to go back in the literature and see what's been studied and what evidence there is for anything that I would say. And in fact, there was evidence and there was discussion and there was publication by authorities in infectious respiratory infection talking about Tom Inglesby and, uh, you know, back in 2006 or seven, where they wrote it up in terms of flu pandemics and they came to completely opposite conclusions about everything we did. And, and this was the defining method in public health of how you manage a pandemic that we reversed on the spot with no scientific evidence for COVID. I think, well, that's exactly right. And we reversed it on the spot, claiming that it was based on science, whereas, in fact, it was based on other uh, considerations on biosecurity related um, models of managing populations, not actually managing pandemics, but managing people, um, seeing people as the fundamental threat, people as a vector of disease rather than seeing the pathogen itself as the thing that needed to be defended against. So there was that kind of paradigm shift in, in public policy, the, the, the militarization of the public health apparatus um, to control entire populations, which wouldn't have been possible prior to the digital age and the, the means of surveilling populations that we now have. Um, but it was also kind of a race to the bottom of politicians wanting to seem like they were doing something, right? And if the, if the governor in the state next door uh, is taking extreme measures. Well, I have to take even more extreme measures so that no one blames me for any deaths. Um, all, all the while using the uh, prestige of science as a sort of shield against criticism, even though what, as, as you pointed out, what, what you were deciding to do there had no precedent in the scientific literature and in previous public health recommendations after, you know, after looking at, at the evidence. So that, that was a real weaponization of science. It was, it was a shift from science as a method to the ideology of scientism. Um, you know, follow the science or I am the science uh, is, uh, is a political ideology. It has nothing to do with the actual human practice of uh, scientific inquiry. But that's, that's what we got during the pandemic. We got politicians who didn't want to take responsibility, so they anointed experts. Um, and then did more or less whatever they wanted. But this this produces a great corruption in science and it produces uh, quite reasonably, it produces a mistrust of uh, you know, among the public of the scientific enterprise. And the damage done from that is gonna take decades to, to repair. Uh, that is true. So we've got another commercial break here. And so we'll take a break and we'll be back very shortly. Please stay tuned. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Out loud. 
We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with Dr. Aaron Cariotti. We, so we were talking about science and scientism, and one of my pet peeves about politicians is that they have, they, they all proclaim all of what needs to be fixed in society when they run for office. And when they get into office, they do everything except fix the problems because if the problems got fixed, their incentives are not to fix the problems because when they get fixed, they have nothing else to run again with the next time they run. And yeah. so these are untoward uh, incentives that really, and so politicians looking like they're doing something is another untoward incentive that actually is bad for public policy. Well, that's exactly right. If you look at public health agencies, for example, you know, if the CDC were to admit that viral pandemics are not the greatest threat to humanity, and you know, we don't need to expand the apparatus of constant vigilance to save humanity from these threats, therefore, you know, please increase our budget. Um, you know, any director of the CDC who did that probably wouldn't last very long because the logic of bureaucracy is expansion. If you're a successful director of the NIH, that simply means you've lobbied Congress to get more money for the NIH. If you're a successful director of the CDC, it means you've lobbied Congress to get more funding to grow and expand the CDC. One well, of those my are the phenomena of, the, of their work, though that, that, that's not related to the actual quality of what they put out. Exactly right. Exactly right. One one of the problems that I propose at least, uh, you know, one simple policy solution to was if we're going to have a public health agency like the CDC that's responsible for epidemiological data, and that, that's one of the CDC's function to gather epidemiological data from all 50 states and synthesize it and publish it to help people understand what's going on during a pandemic. What is the incidence and prevalence of COVID at any given time? Um, you know, who who is dying of COVID? What are their characteristic uh, demographic features and so forth? But that that epidemiological function, that scientific function, I argue is incompatible with the CDC's other function, which is policy recommendations. And in fact, the CDC's policy recommendations very quickly were translated into mandates and public policy. So the CDC director was able to stand up and say, well, we haven't mandated vaccines. We haven't mandated masks. <laughs> right, know. You know, we, we just give suggest... recommendations. Right. And then, you know, and, okay, well, you haven't mandated. And then, then I go to, you know, my former employer at the University of California and say, you know, who's responsible for this vaccine mandate? Well, nobody here is responsible for it. We're just following the CDC. And you end up going round and round and round in circles where, you know, someone wants to find a bureaucracy as an institution of enormous power with no locus of responsibility. And it's yes. like, it's like right. the DMV writ large. Yes. Who is the person here who can help me solve this problem? Nobody knows. Um, <laughs> so, but, but once you have an agency like that, that is given 
uh, public policy, even public policy recommendation authority, um, then those two functions of the institution are in conflict. Because what happened during the pandemic was once uh, once the epidemiological data started undermining the public health recommendations of the CDC, instead of revising their public health recommendations or admitting that they were wrong about masks or about the efficacy of vaccines or about whatever, they started suppressing their own data. <laughs> they, they started not the only public health UK did the same thing. They yeah, stopped, they stopped putting out reports. Yeah, that's right. So so my argument in the book is, OK, split the CDC into two separate agencies. One agency only has an epidemiological function and they are required by law always to publish all of their data and all of their methods. Right. And that's all, all the that data. they do. Not cherry pick data, not all cherry pick data. data, all all of the data, make it publicly available for external um, researchers to, to scrutinize and to, you know, attempt to replicate and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, and then if you want another group of anointed so-called experts to give policy recommendations based on that data, fine. Um, but those people shouldn't be seen as infallible. You sh certainly shouldn't censor any other uh, credible individual who attempts to critique their recommendations, because that's an inescapably political function. And no political policy is above reproach or above critique or, you know, above debate. Well, so what I think happened to a large degree, at least with the universities that I'm uh, acquainted with, is that we had a, in a pandemic, you have a situation of uh, um, what's felt to be higher risk in life and in decisions and in university policies and actions and so on. And in that context, the lawyers weigh in. Yeah, that's and right. And they, they talk about legal exposure. And so the universities want to minimize their exposure. And so they want to put the blame elsewhere. And so when something of risk is transpiring, what they do is they say, just following orders. In other words, we did everything we could because yep. we complied with something from somewhere outside that everybody accepts as a valid suggestion not a not a you know a rule a law a policy but a suggestion so we're following their suggestion okay because our attorneys told us that we would reduce our legal exposure that's exactly right it was decision making by risk management and the, the risk management recommendation is was always if someone else is doing something if another university has you know this stringent policy that we should be at least that stringent, if not more. Right? It's, it was another race. It was another race to the bottom, simply because you know we don't want to be blamed for anyone catching this virus. We don't want to be blamed for anyone getting sick. The idea that any institution could possibly be blamed for someone acquiring a highly contagious respiratory virus that none of these policies managed to stop the spread of is crazy i mean we need to somehow so i don't think that was the, the 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 perception i think it was we would be blamed if somebody gets seriously ill or dies from the virus then, sure then, but then we'd have i mean even just so the, the idea that you have a highly contagious respiratory virus that kills some vulnerable people um and that someone is responsible for that whether it's the you know, blame the little six-year-old girl who gave COVID to her elderly grandmother who died. You know, you you can't you can't put responsibility for that on 
individuals, on groups of people, or on institutions. Um, that's crazy, right? Um, and it's we've it's, never done it before for flu. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Who who's responsible for me getting influenza? Well, nobody. Well, maybe so and so didn't wash their hands enough. Well, Come maybe on. you didn't sit in the back row of the movie theater. Exactly. It's. I mean, it's a the idea that we we could assign blame for someone getting sick with a respiratory virus is complete madness. And yet, that was the mentality that took over the the risk management apparatus. So I think these this was all part of the event planning, event two hundred one, and its predecessors. Yeah to create public hysteria over the this as if it were a pandemic of massive death scale rather than a basically um respiratory infection that had some heightened degree of of risk in its first few cycles but that would eventually settle down like every respiratory virus does yeah in to become endemic and in fact it was endemic before we even did the lockdowns and yeah. we've discovered that through a lot of research and empirical data that we knew it was out there in september and possibly even in august of 2019. yeah yeah no that's exactly right this was um this was used instrumentally as an occasion for the accrual of power by base uh, you know by by various actors elected and unelected and also it was an occasion for the transfer of a lot of money and so during i mean during covid we saw the largest upward transfer of wealth in world history so it was world historical scheme of larceny yeah. that was accomplished through the lockdowns we had you know we had the working class and the middle class you know their assets their wealth their small businesses uh, were vacuumed upward, not just to the top of the socioeconomic pyramid, but to to the very, very tip top, to, you know, to the largest um, asset manager firms in the world, to the largest tech firms, to the wealthiest of the wealthy uh, globally. And, you know, we had Amazon lobbying for lockdowns on the West Coast. Why? Because Jeff Bezos is an expert on how to manage a respiratory virus. No, because during lockdowns, Amazon's competition was destroyed in the form of small businesses. And if people are stuck in their homes and can't really go out, they're going to do a lot more e-commerce. And so we saw, but you know, the plausibility of the whole thing was bogus to start with because small businesses could limit the number of people in the store, you know, with a line in, in front of the place with people spaced six feet apart. Yeah. The whole yeah, exactly. premise that big stores could let people in and small stores couldn't was not even plausible, you know, and, and they got away with that. They, they got away with it's incredible what they got away with it's it's incredible to me the degree to which so few americans asked questions uh stood up and stood their ground and said no i'm not going to be a part of this um and again i think you're right circling back to the earlier part of our conversation we americans have been prepared for this for for decades through the kind of indoctrination that most students receive in the university system and it's, it's very concerning to see where we're at now and how pliable uh most americans were to an authoritarian takeover using 
using this pandemic as a kind of pretense to do things that have never been done before in human history. I mean, going back to the lockdowns again. Well, certainly not in a democratic society. Yeah, I mean, if you look at uh, even totalitarian regimes never tried something like a lockdown, like forcing people to stay in their homes and not venture out. <laughs> that just um, that that has never happened. It didn't happen in in London during the the, the German bombing of London in World War Two. I mean, London had curfews, but they never locked down when, when people were in far, far greater danger right um than they were during covid so uh so starting with that uh, and moving on into uh the realm of vaccine mandates forcing a novel intervention on competent adults steamrolling the right of informed consent and informed refusal which goes all the way back at least to the nuremberg code um and in fact was enshrined in early 20th century law already in the united states by the time of Nuremberg and just tossing that overboard um, and enforcing people on pain of losing their jobs or on pain of being kicked out of school to take this intervention, whether they wanted it or not. Setting aside the fact that the intervention turned out not to be very effective, efficacy was short lived. You got the diminishing returns in terms of duration of efficacy with each new booster. And there's well, there was significant... never a cost benefit analysis. There was never a cost right. benefit analysis. That's right. That's right. And but that, I think that is the fundamental basis of public health is a cost benefit analysis. When you claim there's only a benefit and never do evaluate the costs, you're you, it's unprofessional. You're that's professional incompetence. You're not doing public health. Well, the, uh, pu public health sort of disappeared, it seems to me. Then why um, do all my colleagues, public health colleagues, think they did a great job for the pandemic? It's amazing, isn't it? It's um i actually don't know how to answer that question um th th there's something very wrong yeah there, there's something very wrong with this discipline i, I don't know what it is but, but i actually harvey to, to be perfectly candid i think there's something in the dna of the entire discipline of public health itself that is probably inescapably authoritarian um and that's not to criticize anyone who's involved in that no, discipline there's a lot of absolutely right look you have the intel epidemiology intelligence service at the cdc you have the surgeon general the surgeon general is a military named position it, it is a militarized institution that and i think you know this is one of the things that i have felt for the last couple of decades is that students increasingly going into public health see the medicalization of politics that they think yeah. that political solutions can be medicalized and then public health yeah. can step in and and deal with them solve them or or enforce solutions on political problems on the basis of, of public health where the public health really has very little to say about rights morals ethics and so on and it cares about disenfranchised people as it should but it doesn't have necessarily um a, a balanced view of things and needs to incorporate costs and benefits and and values and i think that's highly lacking yeah no that, that that's exactly right um that that's exactly right i think public health attracts 
people who want to change the world, so to speak, uh, which can be a very dangerous aspiration. I mean, you know, some intellectual humility and say, okay, maybe I, maybe I could do something in public health to help educate people on, you know, the importance of um, eating better and, and exercise and things that they could do to improve uh, the health of, of the community. That's a, that's a modest but reasonable aspiration. But, well, you know, but now we're going to make your soda cups, you know, a maximum of 12 ounces. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And in fact, if you look at the history of public health, one of the things I've discovered as I've dug in a bit to the history of public health is not just that public health and the eugenics movement overlapped and coincided, you know, a, a little too much for, for comfort. It's more than that. It's that the history of public health in the United States just is the history of the eugenics movement in the United States. I mean, it's impossible to separate them. And if you look at the activities of the American public health establishment um, from Tuskegee to the to the Guatemala experiments, uh, you see that the eugenics program, the eugenics attitudes seem to be built into the DNA of this uh, of this whole establishment. And so we can repudiate the history of eugenics, but those same attitudes uh, and that same desire for a kind of totalizing control, I don't think that's been eradicated at all from our public health establishment. I think you're right. I think the impulse to do good is praiseworthy, but it has to be restrained with the impulse to do right. Yeah. Right, That, that you need some degree of thoughtfulness about damage that will be done by your impulse to do good. And with with that, we're out of time for today. And I we could easily continue this conversation. Uh, we'll do that another time. So I hope everybody enjoyed our conversation. And if you have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. Aaron, thank you. This was really a great discussion. This was fun. I enjoyed it a yeah. lot. Yeah, likewise, Harvey. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And come back next week.